So as I mentioned earlier this week, if you saw it on Facebook, you know, I try really hard to theme lectionary passages because very often, if you just look at the course of seven or eight weeks, you can find a theme running through them. And so this period of time between Easter and Pentecost, we're going to talk about how this whole resurrection movement actually became an Easter movement. How does this idea and a faith spread throughout the whole world and it continues to reverberate even to this day? And we'll start in part with how we will end this period. If you notice in this text today, one of the very first things that happen is the disciples are breathed upon and given the gift of the Holy Spirit. And when we head to Pentecost, we will see the same thing happen, where a mighty wind will rush forth, and all are given the gift of the Holy Spirit. So in part, what we're exploring in these next few weeks is how the expansion of the Holy Spirit impacts each and every single one of us. But predominantly, this text here in John is taken up mostly by our dear friend, Disciple Thomas. Now, he was called the twin, apparently, by the disciples, but we have another colloquial name for him, of course, Doubting Thomas, right? And that's how he's always remained. I mean, I wonder, you know, if up in heaven, you know, Thomas is looking down and it's like, man, I should have kept my mouth shut. Because now for millennia, they just call me Doubting Thomas. It was so much more than that. And of course, our understanding both of Thomas and of doubt are shaped by this text. And our feelings of doubt, I think, come from two main places in this text in particular. The first place, of course, is where Thomas says to the rest of the disciples, hey, I am not going to believe in this whole resurrection stuff until I've had a chance to touch the, the nail holes and put my fingers in his side, and then at that point, I am okay to believe. So he's already set up a proposition to say, unless I can actually get a sense of what's going on, I'm not sure I can believe. And then we get Jesus' remark later, sort of the antecedent to it, which is to say, you know, you're only believing because you see? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. And altogether, that's a pretty straightforward argument, right? If you need this requirement to touch and to see, and if you have doubt, then somehow you might be less blessed than those who did not need that luxury. Those who doubt are somehow less blessed, like Thomas. But I think unexamined in this whole thing, is it what doubt is in the first place? It seems to be the operative word here, right? Doubt shifts the whole conversation with Thomas. We call him Doubting Thomas, but we don't really talk about what doubt is. And so, first off, let's kind of attend to what actual doubt is. Andrew Moon, who is an associate professor of philosophy at Virginia Commonwealth University, talks about doubt. He wrote this really great article um, one that made me have to go back to my dictionary a few times, be like, what, what is that word? 
And he talks about three main kinds of doubt, although we're going to put them down to two. And the first thing he says is that there is a kind of doubt that is based on reason. We doubt that the Jaguars are going to make it to the Super Bowl this year. <laughs> For like every single reason there is possible. Right? So you could say, yeah, I doubt Jaguars are going anywhere this year. I mean, you wouldn't be, you wouldn't be too off base to say that you're not entirely convinced they're going to have a win at all this year, right? You have some doubt that they are going to be victorious this year. Fingers crossed, though. So one kind of doubt based on reason, and then there's another kind of doubt that's based on a conscious awareness and the strength of that conscious awareness. And what I mean by that is, I, for instance, uh, have a big bike ride with a group of pastors coming up the kind of September, October time. Something we've been working on for years. It's going to be at Lake Tahoe, up at elevation. We're going to ride all the way around Lake Tahoe, and I'm really excited about it. But I am beginning to doubt whether I am going to be capable of completing that journey around Lake Tahoe. I am having my doubts about my capability. And part of that is because I haven't started training yet. So if you see me out on Hendricks and San Jose, you'll know why I'm riding my bike back and forth and back and forth. So I have a bit of strength looking at what's going on that I can say, you know, my own awareness of this means that I do not have a lot of confidence. I have doubts about whether I'm going to make this happen. But I know once I actually start training and I dedicate more time to getting on my bike and I get it repaired and I start doing all of that, I, I, I change my eating habits to reflect the fact that I'm training, all that kind of stuff. Any of you who have ever completed a race know Especially the first time, there is always that bit of doubt. And then over time, you walk through that journey and you start to realize, no, I actually can do this. The percentage in which you have your doubts begins to lessen. So both of these, though, do not ignore the fact, and this is why I really liked Moon's article, they don't ignore the fact that in the midst of doubt, there can still be belief. I think this is an important thing to keep in the back of your mind as we proceed with the sermon today. So taken together, perhaps the best definition of doubt is that one has doubt if and only if one believes one might be wrong, which is much better than saying that anybody who has doubt, it only happens if and only if one has less than the highest degree of confidence. And this is ultimately where Moon lands in his paper. So let me say this again. Doubt is not necessarily about having the minimal amount of confidence or perhaps doing it the other way. The lack of doubt is not having the highest confidence possible. Instead, it may be one believes one might be wrong, but still may believe anyway. And that seems to be here at play in our text today. You know, it's worth remembering, like we did last week in the Easter sermon, that we do have to situate ourselves at a particular time in the text, maybe more than a lot of the other passages that we witness in the gospel. The crucifixion, based on the best linear timeline that John gives us, was basically a week and a half ago. 
Thomas, like the others, I imagine, is still absolutely reeling from what he's witnessed. His supposition might be, well, that given what's occurred, there is absolutely no way that Jesus is alive. Remember, Thomas didn't see Jesus until a week after the other disciples did. He's had more time not to see the resurrection occur. And if you go a week and a half, two weeks, when this thing was supposed to happen, and you don't notice it, well, you can start to wonder if Jesus really was all about what he said he was. He's having some very strong doubts about Jesus, and they're very conscious. He seems to have very strong thoughts that he may actually be wrong. I want to put a pin here, because you might be thinking to yourself, well, there's a lot of conversation about whether he believes or not. Put that in the back of your mind, and we'll get there in a minute. And again, moreover, keep in mind that every other disciple, apparently, has already gotten the benefit of literally seeing Jesus' wounds for themselves. It was after that witness, if you notice in the text, that then they begin to rejoice. They get excited. And Thomas apparently wasn't there. He apparently wasn't fearfully hiding in the upper room with the door locked, worried that somebody was going to get him. So perhaps, on a closer inspection, we could see Thomas might be a bit more bold than the rest of the disciples. But as a result, Thomas requests that some empirical proof be given to actually see that Jesus is alive. He wants to be strengthened in his position. And you know what happens? Jesus actually obliges him. And that should make us pause for a moment. Because if somehow, wanting to have the empirical evidence that Jesus actually was resurrected and you needed to see the head print and the, the side, the wound on the side, if that was somehow wrong... Jesus is not known for sort of like being passive-aggressive with his response when things are not right. He's pretty direct and he's pretty honest. So the fact that he offers immediately to Thomas, do you want to see? Might mean that it's not necessarily so wrong that Thomas needed his empirical evidence. And here's the kicker in all of this. Jesus, in John 20, 27, in our translation here today, the back half of the passage says, do not doubt, but believe. I said this this morning to a couple friends, that I love the New Revised Standard Version. I think it's the best possible translation. But this is one place that that translation does this text completely wrong. Because there is no understanding in here that the word is supposed to be doubt. And in fact, lots of other translations from the Message, the English Standard Version, New International Version, do not say, do not doubt. Instead, they're a bit more literal because the way that the Greek is constructed in here is actually more of two words in opposition to each other. The word for belief is pistuo. You think epistemology, all those sort of things, right? And basically the way John fashions this text is to say, hey, don't become unbelieving, apistuo, but instead believe. 
Jesus is saying to Thomas, don't get into a condition of unbelief, but instead believe. Now I realize for some of y'all, we might be starting to get into splitting hairs, right? Unnecessary linguistic details, but stick with me for a little bit. Because really, doubt isn't the thing here at play at all. But it's about a spectrum of belief predicated on circumstances that are before Thomas. And I'll be honest with you, if my teacher, if the person that I had dedicated my life to for three years was suddenly strung up on a cross, I'd feel shaken too. So it's not really doubting Thomas. It's Thomas dealing with a lot of really difficult things and as a result might be struggling with his beliefs, although not apparently completely. All one word. But that's not nearly as easy to say. But I don't think that that means we shouldn't refocus our attention on doubt. And in fact, even with this mistranslation here, we can still learn a whole lot. Because friends, the opposite of doubt is not belief. I would argue that the opposite of doubt is certainty. And certainty is not necessarily belief either. You know, let's say for a minute, Thomas was so convinced about what happened on the cross. And the two weeks had gone by, and he still hadn't seen what happened. And at some point he said, you know, y'all, listen, I told you last week that I wanted to see what happened, but another week went by, and it is not going to matter. Jesus is dead, and I am done. that he was that certain. That would have ended his journey as a disciple right then and there. The scene would have closed on Thomas for closing on the potential of what could come. But it is in that pinprick of uncertainty that reminds us of our beliefs and might spurn us on to seek evidence which Jesus does not deny or discourage. And I might argue instead that it is precisely the pursuit that is the foundation of moving Easter from a moment to a movement. You know, if we don't hear what Jesus says to Thomas about blessings in the same context of what we see in the other Gospels as blessing versus woes, as if one is better than the other, Or if we don't see it as a mark of shame for Thomas, which, again, if you look at the full text, you realize that the other disciples needed their proof too. So it would have been shame not just for Thomas, but every single disciple. But instead, as a compliment and as a motivation for every single disciple that will come after this moment, i.e. each of you today, We see that the efforts of seeking and finding, even while not getting the physical evidence that might fully convince us, is a high pursuit. And perhaps as a result, our faith is more deeply earned, more deeply curated, more deeply inside of us, precisely because of the doubts that drive us to pursue it. 
Pope Francis says it like this. If one has the answers to all the questions, that is proof that God is not with them. It means that they are false prophets using religion for themselves. The great leaders of the people of God, like Moses, have always left room for doubt. You must leave room for the Lord. Not for our certainties. We must be humble. Friends, if we believe that all there is to faith is belief unto certainty, we can place ourselves in a mindset of blithe self-assurance that doesn't offer much space for critical engagement and may also mean that we end up requiring only the bare minimum of insight into our beliefs in order to sustain our confidence. Certainty, then, becomes defensively structural and not spiritual. Maybe put another way, when, when you hear, Jesus loves me, at one level, I'm like, bad. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But it doesn't mean that simple on-the-face story is wrong. But can you think in the back, of, you know, the back of your mind, all the ways Jesus loves me has been enacted in each of your lives? over years and decades, ways you didn't expect, ways with others. You see, if all we said was, well, I'm so certain that Jesus loves me, and so that's enough for me, and I'm just going to build my defensive structure, great. But I'd like to think there's so much more to Jesus loves me this I know. But remember, too, where this text gets started and where we'll end was with the Holy Spirit. Doubt's companion may very well be the Holy Spirit with us. You know, the Holy Spirit is always characterized as an unquenchable, free-moving fire, and it doesn't lend itself very well to defensive structures. It's not easily contained, and it will go into the world where God is alive and is working. So perhaps then, we might always want to allow ourselves to have a posture of doubt. Because I think if we always think to some degree that we may have it just a little wrong, that maybe what we read 10 years ago isn't necessarily what we'd read today, that maybe we made mistakes in our understanding of faith, that maybe those who raised us and did their best did their best and were not always accurate. Because if we always think to some degree we may be wrong, or perhaps better, we are not always fully convinced that we have it right, and listen, we've all got a friend who loves Jesus and is fully convinced that they got it 100% right, right? Have you ever noticed what it's like to try to have a conversation with somebody who's 100% convinced that they got Jesus all figured out? The inside of those defensive walls are pretty empty, aren't they? 
They don't have a rich tapestry. If we are not fully convinced then, dear friends, that we have it all right, then we might seek out the Spirit. We might be willing to break down our defensive walls to see where God is alive and at work today. We might not be fully convinced of every single narrative we hear in the world about who God is and who God loves and who God doesn't love and what are we going to do about it. Instead, we might just go find out for ourselves to reach out for the hands and the side. Because that is where Jesus' resurrection is still happening today. And that's where that Easter moment is still an Easter movement. Thanks be to God.